Welcome back to the Leadership Domain, where we believe that who is greater than why. I'm your host, John Roan, and we're here to share stories told by leaders themselves. Each episode is a glimpse into their who and serves to connect them with you, our listeners. We hope that their lessons, thoughts, and vulnerabilities also serve to unlock your full leadership potential. We're glad you're here with us. Lead them well. The Association of Old Crows is the world's premier organization for professionals engaged in the sciences of information and electronic warfare. Today, we're going to talk to an old crow who's also a leader, who's a warrior, and has the mindset that I hope a lot of people will pick up. We're going to talk about his leadership priorities, the challenges of mentoring, how he thinks in bets, and how destruction breeds creation. I hope you guys enjoy the conversation we have with Colonel Mule Kozlov, a great friend and a great leader. Thank you. Lead them well. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Leadership Domain. It's, it's been a long while since I had the opportunity to talk. Uh, life happens. I think some of you who, who know me or the situation know that I spent a lot of time with my family. Father is aging, um, got severe Alzheimer's, and now my mom, who's primary caregiver, uh, took some time. And so I've been dealing with family, and but it's good to be back talking leadership, uh, especially good to be back talking leadership with our, our next guest. Uh, I first met this individual, maybe not the first time, but the first time I remember really interacting with him when he was a student at the United States Air Force Weapons School, um, 2004-ish. Two short years later, we're hanging out in the back corner of the, the 8th Weapons Squadron, uh, affectionately known as the Barnyard, solving the world's problems as, as captains. Um, Colonel Mule Kozlov is one of my closest friends. Uh, you'll probably hear some of that come out in this, but man, what a great leader. Uh, who's about to go take command of a wing, just left group command and has a storied history that we'll get to. So Mule, brother, thanks for taking the time to do this in midst of a PCS and you're probably sitting on a fold out chair or something like that in your new house, but I'm honored. Um, I can't wait to get to chat with you and thanks for this opportunity. Hey dog, thank you. I'm, I'm super humbled, man, by the opportunity to talk with you and to be on this podcast. You've had some Serious heavy hitters. I've always been a listener, and you've been my teacher since the first day I met you. Uh, one of my 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 main peer mentor, and uh, you know I love you like a brother. And uh, I'm uh, I'm I'm hopeful that uh, your family situation continues to get better. And it's not a folding chair in the barnyard. We seek accuracy. I'm sitting on a, a, a air mattress that's uh, three quarters full right now. Uh, but I'm stoked to be here. I'm humbled to be here, and uh, hopefully um, I uh, measure up. Oh, oh, you will. So for those of you who haven't figured it out, he, he's in his new home down at Eggman Air Force Base waiting for his change of command that's going to happen in about uh, 10 days. And Mule, as you transition from one command uh, in absent fighting a war, which will be your third time commanding in combat, to uh, stateside wing command, what are you most looking forward to? Well, the number one thing is just the opportunity to lead in the Air Force is a is a is something that is just a gift and it's not given to everybody. And it's something that uh, I cherish and looking forward to that. You know, the 350th Spectrum Warfare wing is brand new. It's the Air Force's newest wing. Um, and I think it has a real possibility to do amazing things. And so I'm really looking forward to something that I have devoted my career to, electronic warfare in the spectrum and non-kinetic operations, and really having the opportunity to put a strong thumbprint on that even more uh, with the team. and. Uh, 
develop people, develop a profession, and develop capability that uh, provides the Air Force and the Joint Force competitive advantage against our uh, near-peer allies. Yeah, you said it's, it's a new wing, and a lot of people may not be familiar with what the wing does. So is it an organized training and equip type of wing? Is it an engineering and test type of wing? Is it develop new capabilities type of wing or all the above? Yes. So, yeah. Doug, this is something I just uh, I feel passionately about. First off, I think the best way to think about it. So my uh, you know, I commanded the 609th Air Operations Center, AOC, affectionately known as the CAOC. And we have a lot of different CAOCs in the Air Force, AOCs in the Air Force, and some are geographic and some are functional based on capability. So what I'm trying to uh, brand the Spectrum Warfare Wing is as a, a functional wing. And so we provide combat capability and uh, competitive advantage to our geographic commanders in the fights that they're going to fight. So for those of us that have been around for a while, there is going to be some of the, the old new with the reprogramming mission, uh, but the Spectrum is, uh, is not just reprogramming, right? And so we're gonna be developing really cool missionware that goes against our near peer threats. Uh, we're gonna be connecting things that haven't been connected before um, to provide competitive advantage to our command and control brothers. And uh, hopefully we do that with our joint coalition partners as well. There really is no limit. I don't wanna sound like I'm trying to boil the ocean, uh, but there are, this has been a neglected area. And I think that it's one with, um, with relative comparatively to the investment will provide outstanding combat capability um, eventually. So super exciting. As you mentioned, it's completely different, I, I think, than a different type of thought than your previous commands. And you're focused on that peer competitor, you know, we'll make up a country and just call it China. That's got a pretty significant capability. And without that, I think that we are, uh, we're surely hurting. So as you go into command, uh, aside from the mission, have you thought through what your priorities are going to be as a as a new wing commander, but not only as a new wing commander, as a new wing commander in a new wing with a new mission set that isn't familiar with a lot of the Air Force or maybe even the Joint World? You know, I have, and I, I'm really fortunate that the guy that I'm replacing, Colonel uh, Dollar Young, um, has done a fantastic job, him and his team. And so I'm not stepping into a completely uh, new scenario. I think the thing that uh, the things that I'm going to bring are our prioritization on the prioritization on you know the crow ops. What I'm affectionately calling crow ops. Um, I'm talking about the the crow's nest. So we're new wing. We're hosted here at Eglin, but we need facilities and people and, and those kind of thing. And then uh, crow development, right? And so the a reason why the non kinetic effects folks and the spectrum folks uh, have been uh, um, not always organized as well as it could have been is there's been no concerted effort to bring all the deserted uh bring all the different career fields that go into non-kinetic uh, warfare spectrum warfare and develop them purposefully and uh i look forward to having the opportunity to do that so those you know our operations um building the wing and then developing our people and the profession are things that i'm really going to be focused on specifically in the first year you mentioned crows a couple of times, and I, I will tell you that the first time I ever had your community's drink of, of preference was, I think, from you in the barnyard. And for those of you who aren't familiar, if you want to taste some of the nastiest, I'm not sure if it's bourbon or whiskey, you just go grab a bottle of Old Crow. I'm not talking the fancy stuff. Just go grab the bottom row, a bottle of Old Crow, and just take a shot of that. And uh, you will never again want to do that, yet be humbled if uh, an electronic warfare officer offers you a shot of that. 
so I, I look forward to watching you take command. I look forward to sharing a bottle of, or not a bottle, but a drink of Old Crow. With you. <laughs> <laughs> in, yeah, yeah. In a, on that note, it's got to be warm and out of the plastic bottle. And it's better if the bottle has a bunch of autographs from a, a bunch of dudes that uh, work on the spectrum for a living. But you're 100 percent right, man. Old Crow is uh, it's amazing. It's uh, it's the best. Uh, it's the best nectar. And, uh, you know, Trondor uh, supports us uh, in our, our our drink of choice. Yeah, I imagine it's going to be a good night in about 10 days. You, you mentioned people, Mule, uh, when you when you take over. One of the things that you and I have had a lot of conversations about uh, over the past you know, decade or, or almost two is is mentoring people and a leader's responsibility some do some don't some are good at it some some are bad at it when it comes to people and mentoring people what is your focus as, as you mentor now that may be kind of a silly question but i think it's other some people have skill sets that they uh, that they flock to and narratives that they they flock to when they're mentoring but what is your focus when you mentor or develop others wow that's an awesome question man um so I'll be honest with you, I don't have one focus. Um, my focus generally comes from the situation, the context at hand. So I, I try to be, you know, there's people that know the mule out there and they don't think I'm empathetic, but I, I'm actually really empathetic. So I try to uh, mentor based on the context of that individual and what they're trying to do and what, what their situation is. And it really depends on what the issue is. If it's a, uh, hey, should I get married to this girl kind of just mentoring session? Or is it a, hey, what do I want to do in the Air Force kind of uh, session? And so um, it really depends on the individual and uh, and the issue that they're kind of working through at that moment. Have you had one that stands out in your mind as either a scenario or a person or a, or a situation that was just too difficult to, to effectively mentor someone through or that when you got finished mentoring them, you're like, man, that was a hard one and I hope I never have to deal with that again? Oh, wow. Fantastic. So I guess let me start off first with, um, I really believe that to be a good mentor, you have to have a lot of good uh, self-awareness and and know who you are and what you're going through. And so, you know, just, just recently, I came back from a really stressful year as the 609th AOC commander downrange. And uh, while I was there, um, my mom was hospitalized and had some, had some very significant uh, health issues. And in the span of coming back and that stressful job and getting ready to take this wing job, reuniting with my family in the midst of a PCS and then some other kind of interpersonal, uh, you know, issues, I realized that I was uh, not as uh, cool as I normally am and, and put together as I normally am. And uh, I was making some mistakes. So first, it really comes with knowing who you are and being willing to be humble enough to say, crap, I need some, I need to vent to somebody, I need to talk to somebody, I need to get some help. And, uh, you know, when you and I were young in the BY, in the barnyard, um, that wasn't like cool, right? That was not like a thing. And uh, I think that, I think our generation of guys are the guys that have made that a thing. And uh, so I think first, you know, dog, it, it comes from knowing yourself is really the, the first step there. You've got to, you know, know who you are. And when you make mistakes, own up to them and kind of move on from that. Um, so that's that. I think the next thing is, uh, um, I don't know that I've ever encountered an unsalvageable problem, but I've had some, some difficult ones. And I guess what I'll start with to give myself time to think of the specifics is, um, the, what I try to do when it's something professional is pair the individual's personal goals with the, the goals of the institution and what the Air Force needs. And so I, I try to kind of take that mindset. You know, uh, I was a 
I was a senior major when I realized I wasn't going to be the chief of staff of the Air Force. I wish somebody had told me that when I was younger, right? Oh, but, there we go. <laughs> you know, but, uh, you know, so, some folks just kind of, no one's ever given them feedback before or talked to them before. So they, they kind of have unrealistic expectations when they come and talk to you about whatever it is. And those are always the toughest for me because, um, you know, sometimes they roger up to it and they understand what you're saying and sometimes they don't. And so those are the ones that I find the most difficult is when, when uh, um, you know, when a, a male or female airman, civilian uh, uniform just hasn't, uh, doesn't have, no one's ever took the time to marry the professional with the institutional goals and, and kind of how do we chart that course for them. Yeah, one of the things that was always challenging and when I get a chance to talk to, to leaders, it's they find people who are looking or who people they know will accomplish the goals for their organization. There's a task out there and I know my go-to man or woman and I'm going to go get it done. And so you have that, that 1% or 10% of your organization who accomplish all the hard tasks because they're good at it. But what we fail to do sometimes is look at the person who needs a specific task to develop themselves that they're going to fail at for a little while, that it's going to be difficult and take more time. And we as leaders don't take the hard route and use them and pair their skills up with this or their requirements for development up with the requirements uh, of the organization. So as you, as you go into leading a, a wing and as you go into meeting new people, I'm sure some people you will have worked with before, what are your priorities as a leader? Um, when you sit down and talk to your staff or your wing and you brief your priorities, and I don't want to take anything away from your change of command speech or your first commander's call, but what are those priorities, if you don't mind sharing? Yeah, good questions, dog. And um, I, I think you're 100% spot on. I think that what I have found is that people are, are the most uh, on edge and insecure and kind of run around like a chicken without a, with their head cut off when they don't know how they fit in or what they should be focused on or what their priorities are. So priorities are really the, the job of the, the boss man and you know, trying to let people know where they fit in. And to your point about it's the top 1%, you know, it's, uh, it's the same 10 people, STP, right? Uh, who, who kind of run organizations. And I think one of the things that kind of combining my first point with, you know, what are the, how do you make people feel that they, what, what they're contributing is really important to the bottom line of the organization is uh, combined with making sure it gets done well on time the way you want it to be is really developing people, right? And giving them the guidance they need and the course corrections that they need in order to do that. One of my, one of my best bosses I ever had, uh, he, he would talk about iterating and he would say, bring me the 20% solution. And, you know, this, this individual was a general officer and him and I would be drawing PowerPoint, PowerPoint slides in the middle of an IPR in order to get closer to where he wanted to be. And it wasn't a negative thing that the product we brought was bad. It was a positive thing because we're on the right track, but our dialogue had brought other, uh, brought other points to the fore that he wanted to bring out and, and capture. Right. And so I think the number one thing is, uh, to your question of what are the priorities, you know, the same 10 people are going to be the same 10 people and you've got to give them the, the runway and the risk and let them take the risk that is uh, allocated to their, their, uh, their position in the organization. But for the other folks, you've got to tell them what you need from them and then help them get to where you want them to be is kind of the bottom line there. 
I'm smiling. People can't see this, but I'm I'm thinking back to our time and uh, as as instructors together, and the way that we would, you know, air quote motivate people to do things is via ten hour debriefs, is via telling them how how bad they did, uh, telling them how they can do it again, and then make them do it again for another twenty seven hour day. The way that we talk to people, sometimes I'm embarrassed. You know, some of my former students who are great friends of mine tell stories and I'm almost embarrassed about the way that I said or did things. So as Captain Roan, fast forward to the way that I thought as a group commander, I significantly changed the way that I did things. Does Colonel Mule look back at the way Captain Mule did things Ah. to (laughs) to motivate people? And if the answer to that is yes, which I assume it is, um, what is it that changed and why did it change? Oh, man, it's absolutely yes. And uh, so the so the first, so, you know, when I was young, uh, and I'm still young, dog, I'm only 22, was I was a flamethrower, man, and I knew what was right, and I... I fired all the time and I just fired and I fired and I fired for effect. And, uh, I was an absolutist and I was, uh, um, you know, uh, a zealot, you know, in some ways about some topics. Right. And when I was young, I took that, those comments of absolutist and zealot with pride because I thought I was representing something that was underrepresented in the air force. In this case, it was electronic warfare. And we'll talk about hopefully representation and bigger issues with representation later. Um, but it, we're talking about this and gradually I realized that no one gives a shit if you're right, man, if you're, if you're not uh, uh, approachable and people don't want to listen to what you have to say. Right. And so I think as I got uh, older and wiser, I think I modified my approach to being able to fit within uh, obviously the commander's objectives, but also in a way that, um, you know, I was able to use business cases to show how to make the commander's vision and strategy plan more effective with whatever the, the issue I wanted to do was, right? And the other piece is, as a captain, you know, you're specifically in the barnyard. And I, I agree with everything you said, man, as a web school instructor, man, I wish I, I, I actually don't wish I could go back and change those things because it, it made me who I am today. And I, we produce some amazing individuals that are out there leading right now. But there was a better way. And those people, we taught those people to keep to continue and change it and make, make it grow. So um, not saying the ends justify the means, but uh, definitely would I learned a lot from that. I learned a lot from looking back at it. Um, but I think that, you know, when you're young, you're, you're supposed to be laser focused on something. And I was also accepting to what my mentors and the Air Force and the institution were telling me as I grew. And they said, hey, you've got to open your scope, bro, or you're just going to be a one trick pony. And uh, I allowed myself and I put the work in to broaden my scope and develop more skill sets. And then also um, realize that I was part of the institution, not standing apart from the institution. You use the word absolutist. And I, I think back and I, I think I was there with you. Somebody told me one time said, hey, big dog, man, you're, you're just a C2 zealot. And you got, my first reaction was, thank you. I appreciate that. Not knowing that it wasn't a compliment. I, I wasn't mature enough to recognize it wasn't a compliment. Although that individual told me it wasn't a compliment. I was cocky enough to think that they were wrong and it really was a compliment. They didn't know that they just complimented me, right? 
So fast forward, you talked about absolutism uh, and you, I think what you were saying was you're no longer an absolutist. Can you explain that and talk about why a little bit? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the, I'm not right. So I'm an institutionalist. Now the air force has, has brought me out. I was an AOC commander and I, I learned things. I've learned a lot about the air force and it air power in general is built up about with the integration of many, many, many different capabilities. And if you're an absolutist, you, you just can't get there. Now you have to be an absolutist on certain topics. You have to be super focused on very rote things, but you, in general, as you get older and become a leader and a commander, you have to broaden your scope on how does this serve the institution and why does X, something that's completely unrelated to what I what my cookie jar is, uh, impact the larger whole? You know, how do F-35 engine problems impact spectrum warfare, right? You know, you have to understand that in order to communicate that to the leader or to your people, because going back to number one, you know, one of the first points I made of people are insecure and act like a chicken with their head cut off when uh, they don't know where the organization is going or how they're going. You have to be able to communicate those things. And it, it took some time to find leaders that were able to, to communicate and reach me uh, at that level. So I'm no longer an absolutist. I, I now, when I find them, which I have recently, I had a great conversation with a, with a young uh, a staff officer recently. Um, you know, it's, I see it and I, I have some clever strategies on, on how to develop it. And then also sometimes you got to let people learn the hard lesson, which I think maybe you and I both did at certain points in our career. Yeah. People let us learn the hard lesson. I'm not sure if they, if they let us or if they just gave up trying to, to change it and said, ah, forget it. Not, not the hill I'm going to die on today. That's fair. You know, so like, uh, you know, a good example of that is I was recently having a discussion mentoring session uh, with someone who I totally value. I think they're awesome. Uh, they bring great value to the Air Force and the organization, uh, the Air Force writ large, and then the organization that they're in. And I have a saying that anybody who's worked with me for more than 10 minutes understands, but it's, uh, they've heard it, but, you know, get shit done. You know, GSD, right? And uh, when someone asks me why, in general, I always say, because we're the guys that get shit done, right? And so that's that's kind of, a, a, you know, a, a modus operandi that I have, and I try to breathe into my organizations. Um, but this person took that as the the reason to be right and for why they wanted to be in a certain position and they wanted to do they wanted to do a job and the reason they wanted to do the job was just to get shit done and they weren't kind of thinking about the the larger aperture of of the of the institution and the organization and what the whole in their current position and why they were so valuable to the current um, uh, uh, institution where they were sitting uh, was important and i i think that was because the the organization hasn't really given that person a good foresight on how much value they bring in and what they bring to the organization and what their priorities are. And so once you're able to break through the, the bravado of, I want to get stuff done, get shit done and say, Hey, this is what I need you to do. This is why you're important. This is why your skill set and your capability is so effective for us. Um, you can have a lot more efficient and fruitful conversations, I think. The generations that, that we lead, or, or not that I lead, the generations that you lead now, I believe are significantly different than, the, than, than our generation. You know, there are four generations uh, in the Air Force, depending, maybe three, depending on how you count them. The, the younger folks always look at us and say, man, they just don't get it. Right? We look at them and we say, man, they just don't get it. They haven't done the uphill walk to school both ways, et cetera. You said that you were an institutionalist and not an 
not a uh, an absolutist anymore. One of the things that I find uh, challenging is is building trust, right? I, I think that oftentimes that we are in a trust deficit. And the way that I recommend or that I think through fixing trust is first you make that meaningful connection with somebody. Once you make that meaningful connection, then you can start to develop the trust, not before. And once you have that trust, then the conversations, the hard conversations you have with those individuals will resonate. If you try to have a hard conversation with somebody that doesn't really trust you, you're going to get a very different reaction than if you have that conversation with somebody that you've spent the time to connect with and develop that trust. But I think hard conversations are the way that we continue to build that trust snowball. Uh, a lot of times I remember us sitting in the back corner thinking that we could solve the Air Force's problems, right? And as I got older and was allowed and had the privilege of command, I still saw a lot of challenges in the Air Force, a lot of things I didn't agree with. So my question to you, and I, and I know we've talked about some of these things before in our in our phone sessions and our complaint sessions, but as you now sitting as the wing commander, which many will say is probably the pinnacle of, of command, the things that you see or saw in the Air Force that you 100% say integrity first, I do not buy into that. I don't agree with that. How do you have the hard conversations with your team who may agree with you and disagree with that Air Force position, but yet being an institutionalist now, you have to somehow speak the quote Air Force line, or do you feel you have to do that? Yeah, awesome, Doug. So you're 100% right. Everything starts with trust with the individual, and you have to make that and, the, and by making that connection, right? And so the connection actually comes from, Doug, the answer is you have to, you know, to steal the phrase, you have to lean in, but you have to be willing to put your beak in and have that conversation and not judge people when they have that conversation, right? So you have to say, why do you feel that way? And when they say, this is why, you can't slam them right away. You need to take that on the merit and understand it and think about it. Maybe they have a point. Maybe there's something there that you can actually use to improve the institution, right? And so I think generationally, I think that the, <clears throat> the way I think about it is our young people are fantastic. They, they're way smarter than I was when I was their age, but you have to, you have to understand, they, they want to understand the why more than, than you and I did. And you have to be willing to have that conversation, whether that's an internal you versus you kind of hard discussion and a, a discussion at the interpersonal level between you and somebody else, um, or it's about the Air Force in general. There's things in the Air Force I don't agree with, um, but there's a mature way of having that discussion. Here's one example on the on the on the um, on a systems capabilities based approach with the Air Force. Right. So right now, air operations centers um, are going through an evolution. What does the AAC of the future look like? I think the Air Force needs to look at um, what do air components of the future look like, and I think we need to be focused on operationalizing. Uh, the, you know, our, our geographic commands, um, which I think we're taking those steps with the, the force gen stuff at the wing level. But I think we need to change the way we present forces as an forces as an as an but the, the air component is the future of the Air Force. And how do we marry the capabilities of the A4 with the capabilities of the A3? So the AOC knows when and how to be able to task assets. We need to get better at that and faster at that because in order to be a resilient, agile force, we're going to have to be able to do that. Now, I think when you're talking about an issue, right? So an issue that affects the Air Force deeply right now is, you know, it's out there in the, you know, all the domestic politics stuff and the international politics stuff and the economy and all that kind of stuff. Here's my advice to leaders is 
dude, you need to turn up the volume on that stuff. You need to lean into that. And you can't, you can't lead without knowing what's going on in our culture and in our domestic politics and those kind of things. And you have to have a way to tie those things back to your mission and in taking care of your people and have those hard discussions. You have to be willing to do that. And when you do that, you're going to develop that connection with your people and your trust. And, you know, a lot of guys, uh, dude, I'm a middle-aged white guy. Um, a lot of guys are just afraid of, of saying the wrong thing and think they're going to get electrocuted when they say the wrong thing. And I'll tell you, if you, if you lean into those discussions, you know, specifically that are difficult for you, potentially difficult for you, whether it's diversity, inclusion, you know, sexuality, those kind of things. If you lean into that and you're coming from a good place, what I will tell you is that the team is not going to try to electrocute you. Nine times out of 10, if you say the wrong thing, uh, they're going to help you and teach you. And you can learn a lot from that first step of being willing to have the discussion. And uh, it also takes, you know, it's going to, it's going to sound a little uh, trite. I don't mean it to, um, but you have to have like a little mercy and a little bit of grace. And what I mean by that is, when someone has an opinion on something that you disagree with that affects the institution, you have to understand that they may come from somewhere, but that's the only opinion that they've ever had or held. And the grace part comes in when someone makes terrible mistake or bad mistake, um, not the ability to forget about it, but the ability to build from there, I think are two critical things for leaders to, to kind of have. And I can give you more specifics on either of those if you want. One of the things that I, I struggled with that I wish I, I did better, both in squadron, especially in squadron command, but also in group command, is uh, I call it acknowledge and validate. Somebody comes up with a position that's different than mine, different than the institutions, different than one that I agree with. And just because I acknowledge the fact that their position is valid and I validate the fact that the position that they seek they got it through a, a learned experience or they got it through hard work or they just got it through their own specific um, scenarios, upbringing, et cetera. Just because I acknowledge and validate that as leader does not necessarily mean I agree with it. So instead of saying it's a, it's yours or mine, or it's a competition, it can be an and, right? Yes, you feel the way you do and that's valid. And the way that I feel 180 degrees out from where you feel is valid. So now how do we find our points of commonality to move forward and either develop each other, develop you as a subordinate, develop a leader, develop the, the organization. I'm going to yeah, go. Man, that's why, you, that's why you're my, my greatest mentor, man. Cause you oh. said everything I said much more succinctly and better. You're hundred percent right dog. And that's the, that's the, the beauty of hard conversations. If you, if you do that, you're going to get to a better place. And I think the thing in the air force that we, uh, that makes that conversation easier is a unifying factor is our service in the Air Force and the mission of whatever unit or organization you're part of at that time. I don't know if I said it better. One of the one of the benefits about being retired is the time to think and reflect, right? I've thought through all these things that I've screwed up so many times over the past two and a half years that now I'm able to put words to it when I was working, you know, 70 or 80 hour work week and deployed and on the road that you just don't have time to do it, to do it. So Mule, you mentioned diversity. And as you know, that's a, that's a topic near and dear to my heart. And one of the things that I think we, we did not, at least I did not do very well, is making the diverse groups of people, whether it's thought, gender, um, you know, all the, the, the different groups, 
feel like they were truly included or they that that they truly belong. So as a wing commander, what is it that you plan to do to make sure that diverse groups feel like they are more included or that they truly belong to your organization? Wow, uh, that's big. So uh, first off, dude, I'm a middle-aged white guy. Uh, I've said that before. It's not the diverse people that, uh, and not the inclusive people, the people that need to be included. That it's not their responsibility to, to, uh, to do that. It's my job to do that, right? And so, in, I think sometimes we put the onus on others. So uh, I need to uh, develop an organization and operating environment that allows for that to happen, right? I need to talk about it. Um, I also, I think it's really important is to you have to um, make an effort to mentor people that don't look like you and act like you, right? And so that doesn't mean do it above and beyond anybody else, but you have to make an effort sometimes because, uh, you know, some people are products of their environment and they just, you know, uh, through unconscious bias, are just going to make decisions that uh, they don't really uh, fully understand why they're making that decision. So make an effort to, you know, it's something I've done my entire career, uh, mentoring folks that don't look like me. And then the other thing is, as I've gotten older, I've developed a whole bunch of friends and, and, and people, uh, mentors that are different than me. And when I can, when it's the right person, I connect those people um, to get a different viewpoint, right? And so as an example, um, you know, I've been asked really hard hitting questions um, about really important domestic political issues that are happening in the, in the United States. And I, you know, I mentor that person. I have the hard conversation with that person. And then I reach out to my mentors who are different than me and ask them, hey, here, and tell them, this is what I said, what do you think? And I've gotten better because of that. But also sometimes I reach a point with an individual where um, they need somebody other than this middle-aged white guy, someone that looks like them, uh, who they've never had the, pro the privilege of talking to. And I use that capability very sparingly. And I've done that with people of different races, genders, um, sexuality even. And it, you know, I, I do that sparingly, but it's it's a privilege of mine as a leader and as someone who's been in the Air Force a while, where I have a, a you know a Rolodex, and I think it's really important to do. So if there's something there, I would say acknowledge who you are. I'm a middle-aged white guy. I don't know everything. Um, I've got to keep learning. Use your mentors. Hopefully, you have a bench of of mentors that are spread out across the across the diversity panel, and then uh, mentor someone that doesn't look like you. And then connect that person with other people that can, don't be insecure that you know all the answers. You know, pass your mentee to somebody who can provide them even better answers and allow them to continue to grow. And then ask them to teach you as well. And I, I think that's what I would say there. And I, I feel like I've been, um, I've made a difference on, on, on those topics over the course of my career. It's something I passionately believe in. I'm going to go back to something you talked about, which is the political aspect of, of the world that we live in. And we as leaders sometimes isolate ourselves for that. Um, I remember know exactly what I was doing on September 11th. I know exactly where I was at Prince Sultan Air Base. So I'm going to go take you back to August of last year, uh, August of 2021. And I'm guessing you probably know exactly where you were when you as the AOC commander uh, had people or were directly tasked with doing one of the things that our, our kids will and grandkids will read about, which is um, the NEO in Afghanistan. It was all over the news. Uh, it will always be all over the news. You can YouTube it for people who haven't seen some some pretty gruesome 
and in your face videos. So my question to you is how did that situation impact the way you lead or what lessons did you learn that you think are, are relevant to pass on to others? Well, I mean, I got, I got goosebumps just you kind of talking about it. I, I'll be honest with you. I've had an awesome air force career and I've been over the top of some critical objectives and, and flown some big missions and uh, been part of great things, but there's nothing when I, when it's all said and done, what I'll go back to is, you know, two and a half, three weeks in August of 2021 uh, with the team of, of people at the 609th AOC at the 379th air expeditionary wing and across ascent and really across the United States, um, you know, the getting that job done and um, you know, the, it was so big. So the first thing I'll just say is confidence is contagious. Um, so the, you know, I, 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 uh, me and my deputy, uh, we'd get like ourselves amped up every morning, uh, coming, we worked in saving hours. So I don't want to say every morning. Cause you know, it was, it was like, we went and took a nap for an hour and a half and took a shower and then came back to work. Um, oh, but, right, yeah. 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 So we, we, we got ourselves amped up and I would walk in and I had like a, a phrase for whatever that day is. Right. And so the beginning of the Neo, the problem was we didn't know what the hell was going on and the airfield wasn't open. Right. So it was like, today we open the airfield today, we open the airfield today, we open the airfield, you know, and when we finally, and my objective was as soon as the airfield's open, we're going to have plenty of gas and plenty of airplanes ready to do whatever it is that the, the tasking is. Right. Um, and uh, you know, one of the, the common phrases that we said was, what are we doing today? 25,000 off the X, right? So we're just pulling people off the X all day long. And so confidence is contagious. And that's the, that's the thing that, you know, I, I, I think that's the biggest lesson I'll take from there. And the other piece is risk. So we completely in the 609th AOC uh, transformed the way we operate. You know, we, we collapsed the division, sent them to the combat ops floor, which was your old stomping grounds in order to handle the workload. Uh, there were things that the 609th AOC was doing that were unique and probably won't ever be done again. But because we um, accepted risk and we trusted experts, uh, but asked, verified, um, we were able to adapt, continually adapt. We made changes to the way we operated uh, on, on a near hourly basis, right? Um, and then just the undying belief that what we were doing was right and that you know I said this probably at the end of every single meeting or during every single meeting, which there were a lot of at the time, uh, we're the best in the world at this, you know, and you just kind of keep telling people you're the best in the world at this. Uh, we're going to get it done and, uh, you know, keep going. What do you need? Right. And so that was the other thing, um, that I think that, uh, my leadership team did amazing was what do you need to do X and I will get it for you. You just keep going. Let me go find whatever X is, whether X is a, a body, whether X is a computer, whether X is a, a computer system, um, and then I think, dog, the, as I've had time to think about it and do my own writing on it, I think one of the things that the team did really, really well was um, we didn't try to eat the whole elephant. You know, we, we solved the problems as they came up. We tried to get out in front of the jet, but, the, you know, in a crisis, the, you can try, but you're just never going to quite get there, mm -hmm. right? And so don't take your eye off the ball. There was a lot of other stuff besides the NEO happening. We we're still maintaining all of our CAS assets, our ISR station. We we're still doing Iraq. A lot of people don't understand that the 609th was still open for business. We just added the most difficult mission right. ever on top of it with all of our uh, other AOCs. And 
you know, we, we try to get out in front of it, but you solve the problems that are there at the moment, which means ruthless prioritization and understanding risk if you decide to skip it and go to a different problem because that's the pressing problem at the time. Last couple of things you said, ruthless prioritization, understanding risk from a commander or leader's perspective, in order for people to accept and just go do, yes, from the military, yes, people are going to follow orders, but there's got to be a significant level of trust. And as I get a chance to talk to people uh, and people have different perspectives on this, I always love to ask this question is in your experience and from your perspective now, what is the single greatest barrier to leadership trust in the Air Force? I think that, you know, there's a lot of fear out there. You know, I think that uh, the, where we were, we're I, first off, let me start off with, everyone should read the book by Annie Duke called uh, Thinking in Bets. First off, read that book. called? Thinking what? Think, thinking in Bets. It's, it's a really formative book for me and to understand risk and understand decision-making. She has a companion book called How to Decide. I don't know if you're allowed to do, uh, you know, paid uh, announcements or whatever, but um, I think that the number one thing is, you know, we, we have talked about being an innovative force and accepting risk and those kinds of things. But if you go back to one of the very first things I said is people do better when they understand where they're going, what the institution is doing, you know, you're prioritizing. They, they, they need to understand what the the risk is if they're not successful, but also that you've got their back. We say it's okay to fail, but where where have we seen that example exemplified? You know, we 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 really really haven't. You know, and um, I, I shouldn't say we haven't. I haven't seen a lot of those business studies or case studies, um, but we need to be able to look our folks in the eye and say, "Hey, man, you know, you tried your best." I read a lot. And like one of the things that. I read recently that distinguishes really good research laboratories from the also RANs. And when I say really good, I mean the top 1% in the world, there's three or four of them, right? And so when they're doing an experiment or they're researching something, when the conclusion is something they weren't expecting, it's not thought of as a failure. It's a new path by which to ask questions and investigate and uh, target, engage and smack, right? And so um, as a leader, that's the vernacular that you need to be talking about in your organization. Like, it's okay to fail. As long as we're doing it, we're failing up, right? And that again, sounds buzzwordy. I hate buzzwords. And anyone who's listening and knows me knows that I don't speak in buzzwords. Um, but we have to give our, the, the failure to your question from a leadership perspective is letting, is, is the tangible behind what does risk actually mean? And what does it mean uh, not to be successful, but to, uh, in the original thought, but to find new thought that is enhances the organization and the people. So I'm going to put you on the spot. I'm going to give you a little lead in just to get you to think a little bit. You talked about failure and, and risk. One of the reasons I believe that we people avoid the risk or the failure is we rarely reward the failure. In other words, how many 1206s have we written when you said so-and-so tried this, so-and-so spent $10,000, Learn this great lesson, but we got nothing out of it other than the lesson. They are now my airman and CO, CGO of the quarter or of the year. Or it's always, what did they do? What, what squadron party did they put together that was great? Or what fundraiser did they put together? So as a new commander in a wing that is, is geared towards innovation, if you buy this thesis, which is that you can't simultaneously be innovative and perfect, 
how do you reward the innovation slash failure in such a manner that it encourages people to do it and want to accept that risk and want to to try it despite the fact that they know they're competing for stratification against another person that absent the failure, they may get that number one strat. So how do you reward that? Dude, awesome question. Seriously, awesome question. Because that's the challenge for Air Force leaders today with the with the culture that General Brown and the, the leadership team are trying to drive with accelerate change release. And I, I'm all in on it, right? So um, the first thing we have to do is you have to, uh, fan the embers of whoever those guys and gals are that are out there that are trying to do what you're doing, right? So you have to, as a leader, first off, you have to talk about it all the time. You have to say, this is what I want, right? And so for me, the things that I talk about, um, it, it'll come as no surprise to anybody. People have heard these words from me, but uh, I believe that destruction breeds creation. And what I mean by that is creative, creative abrasion, you know, getting in conflict drives through, you know, I, I stole destruction breeds creation from the Red Hot Chili Peppers. I'm a California boy. Um, but getting in there and doing the nitty gritty and uh, coming up with those conflict points and then creatively resolving them. And the true sign of an organization when you're doing that well are the people that can take opposing or disparate viewpoints and integrate those into the solution, right? And then um, what that does is it allows your organization to be creatively agile, right? You're not just focused on a stovepipe. And so you have to use those words and talk about that. And then you have to walk the talk, right? And so uh, when I talk to my guys or when I talk to teams, you know, I always talk about, you know, destruction breeds creation. What's, how do we integrate that into the solution? Um, how do we do that faster? And how do we experiment with that to make sure it's the right way before we slap the table? And uh, I think that another part of that in recognizing people is, um, you know, you deserve what you tolerate, right? And so if you tolerate the bright and shiny, you know, playing the, you know, the, the picnic and all that kind of person is the person who's going to lead the Air Force, um, then you're not helping, right? So fan the embers of the people that you want to tolerate, that you want to sit at the table with and, and uh, have hard conversations with and develop integrated solutions and develop an organization that will quickly try something. It fails, you move on to the next thing and, have, and, and continue to foster that. So you got to talk about it. You've got to tolerate it. You've got to build it, you've got to assess it, and then you've got to move on. And when I say assess, dog, I mean qualitative and quantitative. So A, did A happen? Yes. What was the impact? What was the context behind A that made it successful or not successful? And understanding all those things, because that's how we get competitive advantage. And that's really what the essence of a perceptions-based uh, campaign approach to uh, deterring our near-peer adversaries is really all about, is that how quickly can you change um, – um, your orientation uh, to what the net, what the context is right now. Man, the thing that that I wish that I could see, and hopefully I, I will get to see as I get to talk to you, is the change in the perspective of taking risk from day one. And this is no dig on Dollar at all. I mean, I'm sure he's done a great job, but how the the focus of taking risk on day one changes in your first 120 or, or 180 days. Uh, I think that's going to be exciting to watch. I'm going to transition before we close into something that is, uh, is, is always hard to talk about, but I think it's important for leaders. And oftentimes we, we hope and pray that as a leader, we never have to deal with suicide. We never have to deal with somebody who struggles with mental health. 
Uh, I think, as you know, we've had a, we had somebody in our community who, who recently decided that suicide was, was the option that, that was going to work for him. Um, and it, it's heartbreaking. In fact, I, I talked to a friend last night on the telephone and uh, she, she was having struggles, talked to mental health and the next appointment that they can give her was mid August. So you're not an immediate danger to yourself or others. You're struggling. We'll have an appointment for you in mid-August. Uh, I love the Air Force. This is not a critique. I don't understand how or why. It's not the mental health provider's fault, but that to me seems crazy. So the, the question to you as a, as a commander, um, before I get to the question, I'll say one more thing. Here's my plug. You know, no, sec no uh, secret, I love motorcycle riding. I truly believe the motorcycle culture is something that allows people to get out. I call it wind therapy. You bond, um, you connect with people. And I believe sometimes isolation is what eventually leads people to some people to take their lives. Um, but I love the camaraderie that that builds. How do you as a wing commander in an environment where we're losing 22 ish veterans per day to suicide, create an environment where individuals don't feel that that is the only out understanding before we get comments, understanding that if somebody truly wants to take their life, there's nothing we can do about it. Right. Um, but there are things that lead to that. So how heavily does that weight on you? How heavily um, is that going to be part of your leadership team to connect with people in, in, in that type of way? And, and is that a topic of discussion or does it, does the discussion come up when it happens? Yeah, dog, that's a, a really good, really good question and really sobering one. And I, I'm going to talk for a little bit and hopefully I make sense. Um, so the first thing is it's absolutely going to be a, a something I talk about a lot, but not just suicide, but just mental health and, and our environment. So I'm a, I'm going to kind of set the table for you really quickly. But I, I personally believe that our, our Air Force's problems with diversity, inclusion, uh, sexual assault, sexual harassment, uh, suicide, the negative social ills uh, that we reflect from society in the Air Force come from the operating environment that you foster as a, a leader and as a commander, Whether, uh, regardless of level, whether you're a section chief, a squadron commander, a group commander, wing commander, it has to do with the operating environment. You know, and I, I feel that the operating environment is made up of kind of four things in the Air Force. Uh, I think it's made up of our, our facilities, our ability to professionally develop people, our kind of social aspect of 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 people and then our uh <clears throat> excuse me our uh our operations tempo you know and if you if you can address those four things um you can you can you can have a positive impact on people's lives and their mental health you know um one quick example on that before i continue with your question you know um the it's become fashionable to talk about unconscious bias one thing that the Air Force does a lot, does really well is they provide us resources and they give us instruction. But the follow-up from leaders is often something that lacks, right? So we get the brief on whatever X is, and then there's no follow-up after that, right? And so we've done some of that with unconscious bias. We've done some of that with DNI, LGBTQ, um, and, but there's no follow-up. So if you address your environment as a leader consistently and talk about it, you can actually show some tangible efforts in your organization and other people will carry on your message and begin to build the teams and networks that attack these insidious problems in your organization. 
here's one example, right? Um, when I was uh, at the AOC, um, you know, the, there was lights out at the bus stops. It was dark. Um, half of our force is, is, is women. And as a, as a former college wrestler, a light out in the dark was not something that I would ever, ever think about or care about. It just wasn't something that I even registered with me, to be quite frankly, frank with you. Um, but, you know, I have a mom. I have a sister. I work with women. It's something that should have registered with me. But we had this working group and we addressed those four categories and someone brought that up and we got it fixed in like a day. You know, we just we worked with the, the wing and the wing was like, oh, dude, you're absolutely right. We didn't notice it either. And we got it fixed very quickly. Super simple. Doesn't address suicide. I'll get there in a second. Um, but it shows a positive impact on the environment. It brought us to you, your point earlier. It made a connection with our people by having the working group in the first place. And then they bought in and had trust in us uh, because we were able to fix it very quickly. Now I'm saying us very deliberately because um, the, the chiefs were involved, the shirts were involved, um, the superintendents were involved, the greater team was involved in this issue. Um, so when you talk about something like as, as, as deathly as suicide, I think there's a couple of things that you, you kind of have to start with. The first is it's a team sport. And, you know, as a wing commander, your ability to get down into the DOW flight of squadron Y is probably negligible. You know, so you've got to you've got to get to the squadron commanders and the squadron commanders have to get to the flight commanders. And you have to have that that message that we're here and these are the things we're trying to do to positively impact the operations environment of our organization. Um, you have to, as a leader, with the, 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 the opportunity I've been given is remove the stigma. You know, I started this conversation with you talking about, you know, my own challenges that I had coming off of my deployment. Like I was not a threat to myself or others. Uh, but I was not a, in the place that I normally am and I was not right. And I had to get myself right. And it took confiding in people and uh, uh, self-introspection and those type of things to say, hey, I'm weak here. I need help. And being able to talk about that, frankly, I think it's hard for me even to talk to you about it, especially knowing this is going to go out to a lot of people that uh, I don't know, but they're, but I'm okay with it because I was vulnerable most people know me as strong and I was able to improve myself. So as a leader, you work in the operating environment, you got to talk to use your team. You've got to talk to all the people that can get to all the levels and you've got to be consistent with, uh, with the message. And then you've got to know when, uh, when to tout an amazing success story. It doesn't have to just be about suicide. It could be about diversity. It could be about inclusion. It could be about any of the social ills impacting us. And then you've got to know about when, to not, right? And give someone kind of the privacy to handle that situation on their own. Um, you know, and then, you know, I um, I think another area that we can, um, you know, improve on as an Air Force is, and we have just recently with the legislation or the policy changes that the Air Force has instituted, is we've got to, you know, punish blue mistakes, right? So it's, a, it's always a red flag objective, right? It's a no subjective all the time, right? So when when that thing happens in your organization, whether that's a, excuse me, a sexual harassment or a, or a, um, a bullying that leads to damaging someone's mental health, you've got to end those people. I mean, just period. Like there, you know, there's no more. He's a good dude, you know. And I, you know, I'll be the first to admit that, you know, I have made. I grew up in a culture where, with you in the barnyard, we were allowed to say and do things. Uh, <laughs> that are just not acceptable anymore, period, right? They were not, we were just ignorant. And 
the Air Force has developed us and taught us that, you know, you, you need to, you need to improve yourself there, buddy. Um, and, uh, I, um, I have, I am a fervent believer that, um, you know, we need to help people, uh, when we can, but we need to also help people transition to a different, uh, profession, uh, when, when they don't fit our, uh, morals and ethics and those kind of things. Um, now specific to suicide, I think that, uh, it's, it's such a, such an awful thing. And I think really the, the way to do that the best is to generate an operating environment with your team. And when I say team, as a wing commander, my team is uh, the command chief, uh, the first sergeants, the group commanders, the squadron commanders, and senior enlisted leaders, and continually address that operating environment and, uh, and show, show positive movement on the things that impact people and, and, let, and, and tell the story. You know, tell the story of why we're, we're, why this is an important thing and don't be afraid of it. It's, it's, it's just like, uh, anything else that we do in the, in the, from an operations perspective, debrief it. And this is why we're doing it. And this is what we can learn from it. And, um, I hope that answers the question. I know there's a little bit of philosophy. It, it does. And the philosophy is good. You know, you mentioned the word vulnerability and, to the individual, if I get to talk to a crowd and ask who wants to see vulnerability in your leaders, 100%, right? Hands are up. People want to do that. When I go talk to leaders and the more senior, <laughs> the more senior they get, all right, team, who's comfortable being vulnerable? Who wants to, who's making a concerted effort to be vulnerable with their team? A lot fewer hands. Some audiences are zero. And so what our airmen want to see are vulnerable leaders. What leaders have, hate to do is be vulnerable. I don't think that's ever going to change, but I think it takes a conscious effort to learn how to do that uh, and and to practice that. Uh, it's heartbreaking. It's scary. Uh, we'll never know why a lot of people choose that path, but I, I do believe that um, while there's no right answers or no obvious answer, uh, the fact that we talk about it is is something that I think is is key to leadership and acknowledging it and making sure that it stays on the, the front burner and not suicide itself necessarily, but how do we provide our airmen with the mental health resources support that they require and they need um, in, a, in an environment where we're the smallest Air Force ever and that especially is, is impacting our mental health providers. So, man. Hey, just, just one more, just one more, just one more point on that one real quick, dog, is, you know, the, the other piece of that, and I, I should have addressed it, is as a commander, whether you're a squadron commander or a group commander or wing commander, you've been given this awesome privilege. And you can actually, you know, your, I didn't touch it, but your point about the, the paucity of mental health uh, appointments available at the particular base that you're talking about. But you can, you, you, you get to cut across the circle sometimes, mm -hmm. right? You can, you, so what are the things that you're always going to cut across the circle for? To make happen right and so i'm always going to cut across the circle when the health and welfare of an airman or their family is involved and you you have the ability to pick up the phone and say hey this airman needs this and here's a, a quick story about that and uh we can move on when i was a squadron commander um this was before the transgender policy came out for the air force it was right after they said we're not the air force said we're not going to kick people out of the air force for being transgender but there was no policy for how do we deal with uh with those people um, I had a member come to my office, identify, and they weren't getting help and they were scared and they were frazzled and, and those kind of things. And the base didn't have anything to support them. 
And, you know, I picked up the phone and I, I called the, the, the right folks and we were able to get that person off base in, in hours when it would have taken weeks had we, had, had I, had we not cut across the circle. <coughs> so as a leader, use the position, take that risk and uh, know what you're going to cut across the circle for. And for me, anything that has to do with health and wellness of our airmen um, and to, to, to improve the operating environment are things that I'll, I'll always uh, take that risk for. And no one's ever going to um, fault you for that. You've been taking risks your, your entire career. You mentioned all the things we said and did in the barnyard. I was recently sent an email. And not only did we say and do things that culturally at the time we're allowed to do, we can never do today, but we were dumb enough to record it. So I'll leave it at that. I'll leave it at that. Um, all right, so my scotch is done. I think your beer is done. Man, I, I appreciate this time. Before I let you go, though, uh, I, I need three words from you. And those are... You were right. Can I hear that? Can I hear that? <laughs> what is it? <laughs> what is that about? Well, I remember plenty more than one opportunity we had the conversation about, you know, what's next for the career. I'm like, man, you're gonna be a wing commander. You're like, absolutely not. There's no way I'm being wing commander. There's no way they want the mule to be wing commander. They're not ready for man, the Air Force is ready, dude. And and they decided <laughs> that you will be. So can I hear it? Hey, I, I thank you, dog. I love you. And I appreciate your confidence in me. You were right. Uh, <laughs> and uh, uh, as always, you, you were right. And it uh, I'm humbled, man. I really am because uh, I, I never thought I'd be in this position with the team that I get to work with. And uh, the sky's the limit. I'm really excited for uh, to join the 350 Spectrum Warfare Wing and hopefully uh, uh, continue the great things that Colonel Young and his team uh, started there. It's, it's an exciting time to be part of the Spectrum. So that's very cool. Yeah, you earned it, and I know there's a lot of crows. Uh, there's a lot of barnyard alumni that are that are excited, that are watching, um, and I know there was just a lot of airmen that are just excited to watch what you're gonna do. Uh, I'm one of them. I can't wait. I'm glad I get a, a ringside seat, and I look forward to to celebrating and congratulating you in, in the next ten days. Before I close, parting shots, mule. No, I really am. I'm humbled by this opportunity uh, to talk with you, dog. And uh, again, dude, you know, I respect you uh, with every ounce of my, my soul and fiber. And I, I appreciate all the mentoring you've given me over the years. And I, I hope I make you and everybody else proud. And it, it's just been humbling to have this opportunity to talk with you. And uh, for all the folks out there uh, who have listened this long, get shit done, do it with a purpose, uh, take risks and uh, keep your eye on the bottom line, uh, push product, get paid and uh make 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 shit happen uh thank you dog i really appreciate it thank you for the time and for those of you who, who didn't who don't know mule or didn't recognize mule is a is a unique thinker and what i hope is that not not everybody 100 percent agreed with the things that mule said or thought what i hope you do though is at least have the conversation one of the smartest folks and leaders that i know and I think if you take time to reflect on some of the thoughts and things that were said, agree or disagree, have the conversation, reflect on it. And I think that uh, you will find that you as a leader are improving your skill set and your capabilities. Love you, Mule. Proud of you. Thanks for the time, my friend. Leave them well. Love you too, brother. <laughs>